0: Hello, and thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with Dr. Susanna Greer, which I understand (laughs) is derived from the Greek name Gregorius, which means controversial. It is. True. Actually, does not. It means alert or watchful or vigilant. I think these are all good themes for the podcast today because we spoke with Dr. Sarah Gallist. She is an associate professor in the Division of Health Policy and Management at University of Minnesota. Her work is so timely. It is so 2020. Essentially, she looks at how public health information is translated into the media, how that shapes public opinion and how that influences health policy. So think about vaccines or mammography or the Affordable Care Act. She's covered all these things. But in her research, she doesn't just describe like the processes and challenges, right? She proposes some great strategies and solutions that don't you think, Dr. Controversy?
1: I do. <laughs> I do. Um, in fact, I, I, there's not a lot of controversy in what Sarah does. What, what there is a lot of is just change. I mean, think about how different we consume information or the differences in the way that we have access to information and the way we consume it in 2020 versus 2000 or even 2010, right? We are just overwhelmed with information and information sources. And so Sarah spends some time talking to us about what have the changes been in health communication, um, how do they drive our awareness of health policy, and how might scientists and clinicians take advantage, quite frankly, of the abundance of health communication To really develop their own strategy for interacting with journalists, for information sharing, um, to really get the word out about what we're doing and why it's so important and how you might use this information to make decisions about cancer care. So I think you're going to love, Sarah, this was an incredibly informative podcast um, just around the, the practice of information dissemination. So I loved it.
0: Thanks. Let's get into it.
1: Good morning, Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Ah, Me too. You have such a cool combination of what you do. So your research is at the intersection of how we communicate science, health policy that supports science, and patient decision making. And all of those things have changed so much in recent years. We have an overwhelming amount of information and some really fantastic fantastic advocacy around science and really big decisions for patients to make and to uh, kind of understand all of this information. So can you, maybe let's start on the health communication side. So how has, the amount of information maybe that we receive and how we receive it changed in, let's say, the past decade.
2: Yeah, absolutely. There have been just so, so many changes in the health communication landscape in the last 10 years. So you can start with thinking about how many more media outlets there are. So, You know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, people watched the nightly news, and that was really the source of television news. They got the paper once a day, and now we see, you know, 24-hour news. There's so much more than the classic evening and morning news programs. And so simply the amount of content um, that's available to consumers to consume um, has expanded. And so that's the sort of standard gatekeeper news media producers. But then there's been the enormous rise of social media. And so there's so many blogs, so many Twitter handles, so many opportunities for regular people um, to get their health information out into the public. Um, And we're seeing for the first time that younger um, younger news consumers are getting more of their me- news media from social media than the more traditional outlets. Um, we see practically nobody reading print news. so print news has really been on the on the decline for a while now um, except under except for sort of more highly educated and older audiences. And so, I think on the one hand, this is great. There's more information. We think of it in health communication as the democratization of information, so higher availability. Um, but there's also just so much information, which means monitoring the quality of that health information is a real challenge.
1: Okay. So that's, I hadn't thought about that. You're right. It's been a huge change in a pretty short period of time where we went from maybe getting our news in the morning and at night um, to really having 24 hours our access to news and from very different sources. So, I, that's so interesting. I love the fact that you think about the increase in non-traditional news sources and a decrease in perhaps what we would think of more traditional news sources or a decrease in the the ways that we are accessing those sources. So. I love what you said about the fact that it's great because there's higher availability, but there's also a not so great side of that, um, which is how we consume that news. So maybe help us understand a little bit how then, if we have a more expanded media coverage and more outlets for media coverage, how can that change or impact our health decision making?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I think it's important to keep in mind that there's really two ways that the media can can affect health-related outcomes or decisions. So the first is what we think of as purposeful or strategic communication. So these are like classic communication campaigns. And so those have proliferated as well in the same way that I've described the proliferation of um, non-traditional news outlets. So we're seeing, obviously, more ways to reach um, people where they are through apps, um, through um, online campaigns, um, health messaging on Twitter, and those are what we think of as sort of the organized campaigns by health advocacy organizations or other healthcare organizations or federal information sources like the CDC. Um, and so those are really designed to affect the way people think about health and change their health related behavior. But on the other hand, and the focus of my research is on the effect of incidental health information in the media. So this is a person who might be tuning in to you know watch election returns or something like that, and they see a story about flu in the news. They didn't go to get they didn't seek out information about flu. And the people creating that news content weren't designing the news content to affect flu-related behaviors. It's not a hand-washing campaign or a flu prevention campaign. And so it's this incidental exposure to news that really interests me. And I think it affects um, health-related decision-making in a variety of ways. Um, So on the one hand, it's simply there's the volume of news in the it, volume of health topics in the news. And we know from communication research over decades that when issues are covered in higher volume, people think those issues are more important. And so again, going back to flu, if we're seeing more coverage of the coronavirus, people will come to think that that issue is more important because it's higher on the agenda. It's, they're more at risk than maybe traditional seasonal flu, um, which in fact is not the case. Um, Another way the media can affect the way people think about health is by framing issues. So news media can emphasize the causes of an issue or the solution of an issue or who's affected by an issue. And those strategic frames shape what people think is the right course of action to address the issue. And then we can think of the news media affecting public norms or social norms around health issues so of course the classic case of this is in smoking where the media entertainment media and news media help to contribute to a social norm that is now opposed to smoking But we can think of the news media shaping norms as having a double-edged sword. So to go back to the flu example, if the news media keep talking about threats of coronavirus emerging from China, there can also be a concern of the news media propagating social stigma. And so so as I think about the news media environment, the incredibly complex news media environment, we can think of the news as affecting attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors, but that this can be good, in some ways, heightening people's concerns about health issues, helping them take precautions and action. Um, But there can be negative consequences too, particularly in an information environment that's so complex as the one we were just talking about.
1: Well, that's really interesting. So we can receive or have information shared with us in two ways. It can either be purposeful, and I guess I I would put the American Cancer Society in that category. Yes, absolutely. Very much, right, try to share our information to heighten us awareness and understanding about cancer risk and decision making, but can also be incidental. And what you shared with us is that the volume of all of that um, is changing, and the ways that I think all of that information is framed can impact the um, the way that that information is consumed. So it's fascinating, and
2: yeah, and know. I would just add that all of that happens. That sort of framing and people identifying the importance of issues happens well before they enter a healthcare experience, right? So it it affects the way people think about health issues before they're confronted as patients in the healthcare setting. So I'm really interested in that nexus of how people come to their beliefs, their attitudes and opinions, how it shapes their behaviors. Um, But there's a whole other line of communication about actually how communication happens happens in the clinic.
1: Fascinating. Okay, so maybe let's let's jump off that last statement that you made, that Mm -hmm. a lot of this framing and decision-making that consumers make in regards to healthcare information, you're right, it happens well before we ever talk to a clinician and have the opportunity to have that information shared in probably what will be a different way. Can we move into an area where you have A tremendous amount of expertise. I'd love to talk a little bit about mammography. One of the things that you have studied is where do women get their information about mammograms? And I think this would be an interesting point to talk about it because maybe you could talk to us about what happens before you come in to actually have that mammogram and then
2: after. So, can you share a little bit? What have you found? Sure. Um, So, one of the One of the reasons we are drawn to study mammograms is because it typifies an information environment that could be perceived as confusing. And so my research team has been tracking the news media coverage of recommendations related to screening mammography since 2009 when the US Preventative Task Force issued their uh, sort of updated recommendation in 2009 that received a lot of controversy in the media environment. So our team was really interested in understanding how the news media is covering these issues given that mammography typifies the environment, which is complicated. There's different types of messengers communicating about the desirability of breast cancer screening at different ages, with different scientific base supporting their recommendations, and so on. And so what we did was we did a content analysis of television news media coverage. So we focused on TV and local television in particular, because I think Many people lose sight of the fact that most Americans still trust and watch their local TV news outlets most of all. Um, So yes, I said that more people are getting their news from social media, but if you think about um, groups that are paying attention to health information are paying attention to what's going on in their local communities, local television news is really the dominant source of information. So we wanted to look there to see how local TV news outlets were covering recommendations related to breast cancer. Um, we published this paper that was led actually by my colleague Rebecca Nagler last year, 2019, in the journal Women's Health Issues. And what we were particularly focused on examining is in local TV coverage, how often did the news journalists, the reporters and those they interviewed, reference that there were competing messaging, competing recommendations around breast cancer screening for women in their 40s, and how often they explicitly mentioned that this issue was controversial. So we know from other work that one thing the news media often does is highlight controversy, presuming that it brings readers, brings viewers, in the case of television, to that news story. It gives them a hook. And so we wanted to know how often news media reporters were emphasizing controversy and conflict in their coverage of mammogram recommendations. And I think, unfortunately, we found that the news media did indeed reference controversy a lot in in referring to the 2015 and 2016 recommendations from the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force and the American Cancer Society. So we found that more than a third of these television news stories reference conflict between screening recommendations by various organizations and reference that these um, recommendations are controversial. So from a health communication perspective, we're concerned about this type of coverage because we don't know and we're actually looking to better understand in in past and ongoing work what effect that reference to controversy and that explicit mention of conflict has on the public. We're concerned, for instance, that people hearing that might come to have skepticism about the recommendations about mammography or even other um, guidelines that are very well established around, say, Eating vegetables and exercising. And so, an ongoing work that I'm um, continuing with my uh, research partner, Rebecca Nagler, we're trying to better understand how references to conflict, references to competing messaging in the news media environment might affect downstream uh, women's health attitudes and beliefs and ultimately behaviors. Okay, so, wow. Um,
1: So, not only are we as consumers provided just a bulk more information and more information sources, but we also are going to have to make decisions about how we register conflicting information. And so uh, thinking about mammography in particular, so for consumers, for women who had received that information, who had received Um, what you shared with us would be a journalist that would reference um, competing recommendations. So in some ways you could think about that heightening a woman's awareness of benefits versus harms of mammography. Um, Maybe you could share with us, what did you find about how that impacted that information? So this heightened awareness of pros and cons, how did that impact um, these women's attitudes about mammograms?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So one issue that we were tracking in our news media analysis was how often reporters mention the benefits of mammography and the potential sort of risks or potential harms of mammography like concern over false positive results or, um, you know, getting treatment that may not have been warranted and so on. And so we, um, in conjunction with the news media analysis, we did a study where it was a survey study of women women's attitudes about mammograms. We asked them about their awareness of different sets of benefits of mammograms that are often described in the news media, as well as their awareness of a number of potential harms of mammograms that are also described in the news media as we had ascertained through our content analysis. And we are curious if women who were aware, who reported awareness of both benefits and harms, if their attitudes about mammograms were different than those who, uh, those women who were not aware of both um benefits and harms. And so the idea here is that awareness of both might signal a kind of exposure to this um, two-sided information in the media, um, if, if that makes sense. And so we used a survey to assess women's awareness of the benefits and harms. And we found sort of not surprisingly at all that um, almost 90% or more of women in our study, and this is a nationally representative sample of women, reported awareness of the benefits of mammograms. So the messaging um, has broken through to the public, which is awesome news. So women reported being aware of the benefits of awareness around early detection and the potential for earlier treatment. Um, much fewer were aware of um the sort of um, reported potential harms of mammograms, like mammograms um, could detect slow growing cancers, or as I already mentioned, the potential risks of false positive- positives. Um, although more were aware of concerns around false positives or anxiety. And then going back to that media source, we also found a relationship between more consumption of health media, and more awareness of of the benefits and harms. And so this demonstrates to us that people who are health news consumers are getting this information. Again, great news from a perspective of health communication. Um, But what I think you were getting at was sort of what does this mean? What are the implications of this? And um, what we found is that when we looked at the relationship between awareness of benefits and harms and attitudes towards mammograms, even after adjusting for a variety of social characteristics of the women in this study, we found that women who are aware of uh, more harms were also expressed more confusion and ambivalence toward getting mammograms. and. We also looked at whether they wanted to seek more information about mammograms and in fact we did show we did find that these women who were aware of more harms of mammograms who had gotten more information in in health media said that they had the intentions to seek more information, but on the internet rather than from healthcare providers. So we're really intrigued by these relationships between the sources of information of where people are getting um, their understanding of mammograms and where they wanna seek more information. And I think in ongoing research, we really need to clarify how this relates to actual mammogram behavior, because I wanna point out that in this study, it was a cross-sectional study. In other words, we are only measuring women's attitudes and beliefs at one point in time. So we are unable to follow up with them to see how these attitudes, this ambivalence that we were measuring, these sources of confusion that we are measuring relate to whether or not they get a mammogram. And that's the piece that we are not able to assess in this study.
1: Hmm, Interesting. So I guess the thing that
2: would raise a little bit of a red
1: flag to me, though, is what you said about the kind of secondary or maybe tertiary sources that these women who were aware of the harms um, indicated some confusion, wanted to seek more information, that the information they sought was kind of looping back to one of the things that you shared with us in the beginning was one of these readily available information sources, maybe social media or um, perhaps what we would think of more non-traditional sources then, calling up their <laughs> yeah. um, practitioner, their clinicians. And yeah. and I wonder if you have any thoughts on why that might be the case.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think I think I also just want to um, clarify that when we see in the survey that women are, are expressing confusion or expressing some hesitation, that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing, because like right. I said, we don't know what they do with that, right? Yeah. So being a little confused if it drives information seeking, if it drives a conversation with a provider, that might be normatively a great thing, right? Because it means that people are paying attention and are are are, are you know trying to make sense of, of, of health information and come to the best uh, decision for themselves. So I think what you what you your question is getting at is exactly Um, I think really where important research has to be done is linking that relationship between information that people are getting outside the clinic, right, in their everyday lives, and then what they're doing with it when they meet with their providers, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that the most important influence on um, clinical decision-making like screening is a doctor's recommendation. So it's a real important um, context then to see when a woman goes into the doctor's office, does the doctor ask them where are they getting information from, are they using the internet? Um, I think that gives the opportunity for a patient to share a little more about how they're getting health information, because we know everyone is looking on the internet, we know everyone is sharing information on social media. And so I think having an opportunity to engage around that information with their provider is a really important um, area, because that's where health misinformation can be explained and explored, is with a trusted relationship with a health provider. And so I think um, thinking about these two contexts is completely isolated where you have media and kind of again sort of the sources of women 's information out in the out in the wild out in the media and then what happens in the clinic they're not disconnected they're a hundred percent related and I think clinicians, given what we know about how much health information is out there on the internet and in social media and the level of misinformation that 's available, providers ought to be engaging in conversations. Um, you know, related to cancer and other health issues about health media sources. Um, Because, again, the clinical factors, um, you know, what the provider says and that trusted relationship to help explore health information that that people are exposed to is really going to be where the impact on health decision-making will will ultimately lie.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's kind of an interesting, I think, segue that we can make between those... Two camps. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. between if we think about just kind of generalized media on one side and then clinical experts on the other, Mm -hmm. um, what lies between would be practitioners of what I I think is a very rapidly and robust field of um, practitioners of science communication um, who sit in the space of perhaps not a generalized media outlet, um, but also not just your friend and neighbor on social media, mm-hmm. but individuals who have access to expert information and can help pre-digest that and share it in a way that it is readily consumable um, to inform the, the non-expert audience. So I, I'm interested, and obviously this is... Um, and interest from the American Cancer Society and from anyone else who is a leader in this space. So what are your thoughts on how people who are in this position of being science communicators and science sharers, how can we better work with journalists, health advocates to improve uh, the way information is shared that kind of sits in that in-between space um, between the media and your expert, you know, mm-hmm. clinical Practitioner, who you you may or may not be able to go to for ready information sources.
2: Yeah, I think this is an excellent question, and actually, another area of my research has been on sort of better translation of scientific evidence to the public. And so, I have a lot of thoughts about how um, cancer control leaders and scientists can um, better engage with the media and with the public. Um, so, one way is simply for you know, cancer researchers, other leaders and experts to better understand the information environment, to better understand how reporters do their work and what the news values. I think there's too often um, a little bit of, of not distrust, but a little disconnect that, you know, the news media, they do their own thing. We scientists, we do our thing. But really, I think it's more appropriate to think about those two Um, really important entities for informing the public as being in relationship to one another. So if scientists want to shape the media, it really helps to know what reporters and producers are drawn to, what issues and types of context reporters and news producers want to cover sort of, and this includes issues that are novel, obviously the novelty, the newness is what makes news, but also issues that are close to home, will resonate with viewers and audiences, discuss relatable individuals, and use stories. And so if cancer scientists better understand that those are those are um, kind of basic features of the news media environment and what reporters want to cover, they can work together to create better stories that will be sort of evidence-based and also will appeal to viewers. And so I think it's also important to understand what motivates journalists. So we've done interviews, my research team has done interviews with journalists to better understand what they wanna cover. And just like scientists, they wanna get the story right. right? They wanna tell stories people care about, but they are doing their work in health communication and health journalism with declining resources and as we just discussed, a rapidly changing environment. So if cancer scientists can kind of better understand what journalists are doing and the constraints they're facing, I think they can be in better partnership, in better relationship with journalists to tell stories together. And so I want to emphasize that um, relationship part one more time because… In work, research over a, you know a long period of time on knowledge transfer or dissemination science demonstrates that sort of the best way to get research into the hands of people to use it is through building relationships. So whether that's relationships between organizations like American Cancer Society and reporters or, or um, other entities and policymakers, that's how information gets spread in a way that's trusted and most likely to be used. Um, and so I think individual scientists can um, take time to get to know their local journalists in their area, right, build relationships with them so that journalists will call on them to be a resource in telling stories that matter for people facing cancer and their families. Um, so this takes a lot of time. It's not easy to say, oh, just build relationship, right? Relationships, we all know with all of our relationships in every part of our lives, take time to cultivate. Um And so I think, but I think that that's how information in the environment can get better when journalists are turning to scientists who have the evidence and the expertise to share because we know there's so many other sources of information that simply, to be honest, won't be as good as the information that that cancer scientists and cancer aspects have to share. I think It's also great news that there's organizations that are already trusted by the public and journalists that can be used to convey science, like the American Cancer Society and other organizations. And so it's not that scientists have to go it alone, right, in cultivating relationships and responding to every media inquiry, but thinking about building an ecosystem of relationship where uh, scientists better understand journalists, and organizations help to link journalists and scientists together. And so that's really my vision for how we can improve um, the media ecosystem is, um, you know, by getting more more voices out there that are trusted, that um, turn to one another as resources. So when journalists turn to scientists and scientists turn to journalists, um, they can tell better stories that help people. Oh, I love that. I've, um, I've never heard
1: to our current kind of media climate and the interactions with experts as being an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. That's really a a beautiful way to think about it where all of these different voices who, while we may have different drives, ultimately we have the exact same goal of trying to share information that is true um, in the best way possible so that it can be consumed and acted on Um, so I I like what you said about turning to one another. One of the things that I I would love for you to share, because you have such insight in this area, we interview lots of scientists on this podcast, and I I think our audience has a general idea of what the challenges are that clinicians and scientists face. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we have an idea of the challenges that Journalists face in this changing media and environment. So, is that is that something you could just share, kind of your thoughts on what you've learned?
2: Sure. Um, I mean, I think that the biggest challenge journalists face is time scarcity. I think we can all we can all, in whatever our professional roles, uh, appreciate that. So, um, journalists don't have a lot of time. They're on deadline pressure, and when there are so many other um, other uh, reporters out there covering stories, there's concern about you know getting scooped and wanting to be first to tell that story um, and so that's an enormous constraint that reporters face and so oftentimes scientists and others worry about um, you know getting mis- getting misquoted in, in news reports and that is a that is a fear I think of engaging with journalists but um, there's also a role for helping journalists in the background right sort of um, being available for, helping journalists understand the context around issues that may not be for a breaking story that's going to air at, you know, 6 p.m., but might be useful context in setting the stage for other stories. So I think that's important, sort of uh, journalists want to know where they can go for background information quickly. And that's a place I think a lot of scientific experts have so much to offer the way I tell my colleagues, you've written background section after background section for for <laughs> for articles, for grants, and all that information has value, even if it's not relevant to a particular kind of new finding that's going to be breaking news. But have sharing that information can. Help journalists write the story better when they are on deadline, if that makes sense. And that's something I've I've gained from from talking to journalists. And I think just being really mindful of the pressures that journalists face, and so they really do need, if journalists are calling, whether it's a a, a, a patient for a patient's a patient's perspective or a scientist for their perspective, understanding that they need a response, even if that response is no, I, I can't participate in this interview on this time frame, um, is is is, is respectful, right? Because they do need to move forward. Another thing is, I think, offering other, other uh, if you can't participate in an interview for whatever reason, offering others who can um, in order to help diversify the number of sources that journalists are drawing from to tell stories. Um, that's a really, I, that's a, a piece of advice I often give to others who are looking at, at how they can engage with journalists, even if they don't have the time. Well, it's helping to identify others who maybe are working in areas that aren't getting, aren't Um, on stories that aren't getting told um, or representing communities that may not always be uh, in the media spotlight. So helping journalists to find new stories, find new sources of information. I love that.
1: That's some really great
2: concrete advice. If we want to think about um, if you're a
1: scientist or a clinician and you're like, yeah, I I really do want to engage with the media in a more active way. I think uh, the best message that you had was that uh, we should work to develop relationships. And then you, um, I, I think that kind of leans in toward your comments of being a supportive source, <laughs> that your your quote may not end up um, in the New York Times, but could really help to develop a journalist story in a more comprehensive and analytical way. And then I loved what you said about um, uh, lifting up others. So especially if there are colleagues who Perhaps have different or better, or even opposing expertise. That a good thing for us to do uh, is to provide alternative and additional sources. Um, I'm wondering: is there is there anything else, anything else that we left out? Um, strategies that you would recommend scientists and clinicians to use if um, they really do want to get their message out and try to cut through what is, you know, you shared with us is an incredibly complicated. Um, information environment.
2: Yeah, so as we were talking about um, before, there's so many new ways to get information out if you think about blogs, podcasts, social media. So I think for scientists that really want to communicate to the public, they can do so. So uh, clinicians, scientists, patients, There is a great opportunity to get information out there through op-eds, through blogs, to get really high quality information out there in the ecosystem. And so I think another important strategy um, that's very specific is for those who are interested in more engagement with the public or with journalists is to take advantage of uh, communication training, science communication training or media training so engaging with journalists is a skill that takes a ton of practice. And so we think about how much we practice in science or medicine. You practice your skills all the time, whether it's doing another scientific experiment, (laughs) seeing patients, um, writing, writing, writing research articles, and we need practice to get good at the things we want to do. And so engaging with media is another example of something that requires more practice. Um, And so there's trainings available, and um, folks who want to do this should take advantage of them. And then the last piece of advice, if I may share, um, is particularly on the research side, is to really be proactive about dissemination. So, researchers like myself, we proactively plan a research proposal, right? We know what we're going to do, you know, the first name of the project is to do this, the second name of the project is to do this, but we should also think about being proactive about dissemination, thinking carefully about who is going to be most impacted by these research results, who needs to hear them, and how should they be communicated, and when. So it's really unlikely that the random date that a journal publishes an article is the best time to communicate that, those research results. So thinking proactively and strategically about a dissemination plan can really be the best way to make sure that science-based information has an impact, planning for how and when to share scientific information. So that would be my other big tip for scientists who want to be more proactively engaged with translation. I really love that. uh, A couple of years ago, the American
1: Cancer Society, we changed one of the criteria around our grant submission that we require a statement of outreach and advocacy uh, because we want to know, how are you going to share your findings outside your academic environment? Um, Kind of our our tagline is that your science hasn't happened until it's been communicated. So yeah, um, yeah, we definitely agree. And and I'll say, I just going to going to put this out there. I know of a pretty awesome podcast (laughs) that cancer researchers can participate in, uh, which is widely listened to (laughs) across the world, the universe. A great way to to share science. Great way to share science. I agree. We're really grateful for you joining us today, Sarah, and um, certainly look forward to to many more of our our cancer research colleagues doing so. I want to wrap up with two questions. And the first thing that I, I want to ask is uh, you are yourself a scientist, you're a researcher, and I'd love to know if there are ways the American Cancer Society that um, that funding from the ACS has impacted your career.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, so I uh, was the recipient of a research scholar grant that ended in 2019. Um, it allowed me to do a huge number of studies on media coverage, on Uh, media effects and uh, women's attitudes about cancer um, that I think have been published and will continue to be published. So, of course, the peer-reviewed publishing is important. But I also want to identify the training that the funding has allowed me to have. And so um, training for the future generation of researchers, I have been able to involve so many master's level and PhD students in this work in various ways, whether through conducting analyses, helping to draft papers, engaging. I had a PhD student who conducted the interviews that I described a little bit with journalists about the constraints they face in communicating about cancer. And so not only has the research funding helped me publish, but it's also given so many research opportunities to students, including... Um, many students of color and students who might not otherwise have had opportunities to engage in research through this grant. And so I think that's really, really wonderful, Um, also just professionally, the research funds that I received were kind of the big boost in my tenure case. So I got the grant right before going up for tenure. And I'm happy to say now I'm an associate professor with tenure. So I could go on and on and on. But I think those are the the main high points for how the the research scholar grant has affected my career and of course, my collaborators. Um, this has been a team science effort 100%. So my last question is that I wondered if there's a message you would like to share with our
1: listeners who are cancer patients and, and those who, who love them. Um, is there something specifically you'd like to share with that audience?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say that you should be really um, critical, <laughs> critical consumers of media, so paying attention to what the media is covering as it relates to cancer, but asking questions um, and bringing those questions into the clinic to talk to providers but also not being afraid to get your message out. Tell your story of um, living with cancer, surviving with cancer, being a caregiver for someone, a loved one with cancer, because the news media needs your stories to tell. Um, and so that's a wonderful opportunity to, to engage and ensure that your experiences have impact and will matter to others. So please uh, engage with media if you can share your story.
1: Well, thank you, Sarah. This has been a really interesting and informative conversation. I've learned so much. And I think the message I'm going to take away is that all of us, no matter what our level of engagement with cancer is, is that there are opportunities to communicate our situations and our expertise and that each of us needs to be proactive about doing so and and building the relationships that can help make that process flow. So thank you so much for all you do. We're really grateful. Thank you.